The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Francine, have you seen this amazing graphic on the Bloomberg Terminal? So about Goldman Sachs, government Sachs, since the end of 2005, there have only been a, a, a matter of days in which a Goldman alumnus didn't hold the position of either Prime Minister, Finance Minister or Central Bank Chief in a G7 country. I mean, this is classic Simon Kennedy, who's in charge of our economics uh, coverage. And Simon himself is on the phone. Hi, Simon. Hi, Simon. Hi. Well, how did you get this idea? Did you just know that every post around the planet of import has some point got a Goldman bloke in it? So I think this is quite Bloombergy, but I did know that uh, that Mario Draghi, who stepped down at the weekend as Italian Premier, um, had some time in Goldman. And that got me thinking with the arrival of Rishi Sunak, just how little there had been in, in recent years, a moment where the G7 lacked a, a Goldman Sachs alumnus at its table. And when we put the data together with the uh, the team at Bloomberg Graphics, we, uh, we discovered it was really only a matter of about 48 hours. So why do you think it's not, uh, why is it always Goldman Sachs and not other banks? Like, why not JP? I just think it's tradition. I think there is a, you know, you can criticise it and say that if you look back at Goldman, a long period of time, Treasury Secretaries, I think of Secretary of State as well, they've been, they've been that kind of, that driving force. And Goldman's been around a, you know, a long time. JP Morgan's had different forms. There's been a moment, I think, in time when Jamie Dimon has been linked with the Treasury. So perhaps that's that moment. I don't know quite what's in the Goldman Sachs water, but clearly people feel that there's a, uh, for good or bad, there is definitely a, a road between uh, the Goldman headquarters and, uh, and Washington and now other capitals. Thank you, Simon. I'm Francine Lacroix in the London studio. I'm David Merritt. Back with you again, Fran, in the London studio. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast, connecting you to the stories and the voices at the heart of the city of London. This week... This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. So there he is. Now, is this the Prime Minister that the city really needs? There's a sense that maybe the city's got their man in number 10 Downing Street. The 42-year-old Dave spent the bulk of his private sector days working for hedge funds after a stint at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, and I think he's probably, the, he is the first UK Prime Minister who has worked at a hedge fund um, as an activist investor, no less, looking at underpriced assets um, and trying to boost their value. Can you do the same with Britain? Yeah, so he understands it, but I don't know whether he wants to throw his weight behind it. We'll discuss whether he's got just the right CV to win over a market that has lost faith in the government. Joining us back again, a show favourite Bloomberg editor on our finance team, Catherine Griffiths, and the man who bills himself as all things <laughs> City of London. Um, back again also, Bloomberg's editor, Tom Metcalf. Thank you both for joining us. Catherine, all right, so we have a former hedge fund manager in charge. We have former Goldman Sachs, a former chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Is this good or bad for the city? So I think Rishi Sunak is very lucky because he comes in, as he himself has said, to clear up this sort of massive mess that his predecessor has made. So he's he's already in massive positive territory with the city. But I think that 
people are divided. Um, there's lots of people in the city who will very much appreciate his um, moderate, cautious notes. Um, but there are certainly those who are who are sort of crying this morning because their dream for reform for City of London 2.0 maybe maybe that dream is dead. I know when we talked in the summer Catherine we explored didn't we how the city really was pivoting from you know being a bit skeptical about Liz Truss's agenda this big radical approach to thinking you know what maybe it's just what we need to get this economy going and there's massive disappointment obviously at how that crashed and burned and you know this rad there isn't going to be a radical reform now is there it's going to be let's try and stabilize the ship yes um and actually even now with people being very grateful and, and keen to see him stabilizing the ship even now people are saying well actually we do need to hear a bit about growth and we need to hear a positive message um, I think probably what we will get is a positive message, but it will be more one that Sunak actually already articulated last year, which was about fintech. It was about green investment. And it may be far less um, about the possibility of, you know, yet more benefits for non-DOMs and whether or not we're going to get rid of inheritance tax that I think there were some people hoping might be the case under a, a trust city vision. So, Tom, when he was chancellor under Boris Johnson, there was just not much love to the city. They didn't do anything to upset them. They just didn't really focus on it. Then we have Quasi Quartang with the Big Bang 2.0. Like, how, how are city grandees feeling about it? Do they want less regulation? Do they need less regulation? Or are they just happy that things are stable for the moment? You know, I think it's been such a you know bizarre few weeks, so much chaos that I think it's probably fair to say that stability is now top of people's mind. You know, it may well be true that, you know, under Sunak, they're going to see higher taxes than were promised by, you know, Truss and Kwarteng. But I think they'll probably take that as sort of the, the necessary evil of, of moving away from what was a pretty critical time. So I think stability and um, perhaps just, you know, sort of a very slick presentation is probably what we can expect. Um, but yes, I, it'll be quite amusing because obviously during the moments of chaos, they were hoping for stability. And I'm sure now they have stability. They'll probably now go back, as Catherine was saying, to like, oh, but can we please get a little bit more reforms or <laughs> yeah. stuff like that? Never happy, are they? Exactly. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, you know, we track obviously the, the, you know, the market moves really closely here at Bloomberg. And, you know, the, the guilt market was the thing, wasn't it, in the last few months? That's what really arguably did for her agenda. And actually, we're seeing now the long-term guilt yields back to where they were before. And we've spoken, I think, Catherine, you and I were talking about the long-term, the possibility of long-term scarring to the markets. It looks like maybe things are healing a bit faster. So is that credibility in the markets now fully back to where it should be? I think, actually, there's a possibility that the fiscal event might even be slightly... Um, more positive than than people were positioning for in the last few days. In terms of growth forecasts, that's just a little bit less doom and gloom than we were. A little expecting. bit less doom and gloom, exactly. I th I think there could be a chance that Hunt and Sunak are able to kind of dial back the sort of doom and dire warnings, um, and whether that turns into cold hard numbers and, and policies maybe not but certainly in terms of messaging I think there's a view out there that it could be not quite as bad as as they had um, they had feared. And actually we had the Barclays CEO come out and say in terms of the, the gilts, the LDI market he's seeing it as you say return to sort of pre uh, what was it September the 23rd. Right. You know, so pensions days. are okay 
you know, there's not going to be a huge run on assets. I mean, it, some of those really apocalyptic warnings we had are actually not going to happen. Yeah, I think it's like a big step change from, you know, literally a week ago, uh, you know, where there were still those fears. It just does feel it's kind of gone back to a bit more like normal. That's not to say it couldn't swing back. The UK is in a very vulnerable place. It's not part of a big trading block anymore. But it does feel like almost... Listen, we won't forget the last few weeks, but it's almost basically back to where we were before. But, Tom, the, the numbers don't change. And I don't want to be, you know, the pessimistic one, <laughs> Dave. But if, oh. if you look at the cards they've been dealt with, there's a bit of a honeymoon period where the markets say, right, we have grown-ups in charge. They're stabilizing the economy. There's experience. The cabinet's okay. And then there's a cost-of-living crisis. There's inflation going up. There's interest rates having to go up, which increases mortgages. So the numbers really haven't changed for, for the City of London. So I don't know how much... The Prime Minister c- can give to to finance really in this country. Yeah, I, I don't think we should get too excited about sort of radical change or anything like that. I mean, you know, you look at the personalities involved, they're all pretty stable. They obviously have had a very harsh lesson in the past few weeks about what happens if they do sort of over overstretch, as it were. So I, I would agree. I think maybe the rhetoric might be a bit more positive. But I think if you're, you know, comparing it to say what Quartin went with, you're not going to see anything like that. Um, and, you know, look, Maybe this speaks to my own inherent laziness, but if I was Sunak, he's done a lot of this work as Chancellor, and I wouldn't be surprised if he just sort of kind of hauls that out again. And yeah. it's almost like, you know, go back a year. So what happens to this post-Brexit overhaul of regulation? Like, if, does it have to come from the Prime Minister? Does the Prime Minister say, look, I want to now focus on the City of London, or is it the Chancellor, or is it actually someone like John Glenn? So it's a, it's a tricky, awkward little situation, that, because all of them have, have massively been involved in that in the last year or so. So we have Andrew Griffith, who is the city minister, and certainly the uh, re-emergence of John Glenn um, into the cabinet as chief secretary to the treasury sparked all sorts of speculation about what what will happen there. But Glenn himself and Sunak, of course, uh, when he was chancellor, had a massive, massive role in talking to all the city firms, trying to figure out what the future post-Brexit financial framework would be. So it could be quite an awkward three-way marriage there where you've got the Prime Minister who clearly has bigger things on his mind, but will definitely want to be part of this. Glenn, who has massively owned this, and, and Andrew Griffith, who has been you know, running around the city talking to firms and who clearly has very ambitious um, ideas. Um, so not clear now. And is Andrew Griffith staying in that role? As I said, we don't know, right? I mean, that's a bit of an unknown at this point. He's definitely a bit more of a radical, well, in the, it's part of the trust pick than John Glenn. So is John Glenn's appointment as a chief secretary, does that mean we, we, we could expect a change there? Or we just don't know. We just don't know. But certainly Andrew Griffith has been really quite radical and has um, has certainly divided opinion among city people. Some people think they like his energy and his ambition. Um, and, you know, we, we have written, we have reported for Bloomberg about the fact that they're really quite wor- worried with trust going that the whole that side of things might be put in a drawer. But then even before the sort of massive drama of the last couple of weeks, there were among mainstream finance firms, really quite a lot of concerns with what Andrew Griffith, reflecting trusts and Quateng, wanted to do. Too radical. Too radical, too far too much, you know, tacking away from the EU, too much rolling back of consumer and small business support, you know, basically Singapore on Thames. Mm-hmm. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So, so no, so let's shelve the sweeping deregulation for the moment. But we're now talking about a windfall tax on banks. Yeah, and I think that, to be honest, uh, you know, everything else is kind of on the sidelines. If, if say Sunak wants to go out there and really sort of get the banks on his side, he's going to not raise their taxes. And it's a very complicated situation because it's um, you know been moving around and they've had reverse things or whatnot. But basically, right now. Corporation tax is going back up to 25%. Mm-hmm. And the big, big question is, what do the banks pay in this 8% surcharge? So back in the day when Sunak was chancellor, he was saying, I will drop the surcharge to 3%. So you think banks will pay a tw- uh, 28% tax rate. And the big question now is, will that sort of decrease maybe be narrowed a bit? Uh, and that will be the big thing. And basically, you know, you've heard on all the earnings calls, if the banks get away with 28% or maybe a little bit higher, great. It could go all the way to 33%. And that would be a very clear message as a negative to the City of London. And that would be bad news. And I think with this taxing now on them as corporations, there's a bit of a difference between the UK, the big UK banks, which I think essentially realise they're going to need to suck it up on yeah. a windfall tax. And some of the other big international banks, which maybe feel a bit more ambivalent about that. Um, We reported that Jamie Dimon, the boss of JP Morgan, um, wanted to talk about tax with Jeremy Hunt, um, not in a sort of ticking him off way, of course, but in a sense of, well, can you give me an idea of what the actual plan is in the longer term, is our understanding. And I do wonder if Sunak and it will be Sunak, really, not Hunt, will sort of say, we're going, to ta- we're going to hit you now, but we will. I'm going to send you a message that by 2024 or at some point in the future, we, our intention is to bring bank taxes down again because we do want UK banks to be internationally competitive. Yeah, because that's the point, you know, and as Tom said, you know, the, we're, we're in a competition in here in the city with Frankfurt, with Paris, you know, JP Morgan have, have taken Amsterdam, JP Morgan have taken extra space, haven't they, in Paris. They're one of the banks that have really added to their staff in continental Europe. So, you know, Sunak doesn't want to preside over more of a drip, drip, drip of jobs, does he, into continental Europe, particularly out of the city? No, he really doesn't. As a as a Brexiteer himself, he wants to be able to prove that um, the UK has a very kind of strong and, and positive future as a financial centre. So, I mean, when he was Chancellor, the Treasury did a big piece of work looking at bank tax. And mm-hmm. that's, as Tom said, that's how they came up with this level of 28%, which would be higher, crucially, than other companies. And they wanted to point that out. So banks needed to pay their, what was seen to be their fair dues. But but was still internationally competitive. So that 28% level... That was the sweet spot, right? It was supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. That was the sweet spot as of last autumn. So it'll be very interesting to see what they say as of now. What can we expect now that Sunak is in charge in terms of the divergence from Europe? You know, after the chaos the last couple of weeks, it has been said kind of for the first time with any credibility, actually, should we think again about forging a closer relationship 
back with the European Union. We had Guy Hans talking about how Britain is doomed unless they rethink that relationship. Is that coming into the equation at the moment? And where, where are we going to land in terms of that kind of distance with Brussels? Yeah, I, I mean, there's very strong words from Guy Hans. Mm. Um, I don't know, there's definitely that sentiment, like kind of coursing through the city. But I think by and large, people recognise, you know, directionally, there's, there's no going to be immediate change for sure. And I think, you know, anything like that would be host a general election and probably many years hence in terms of certainly anything really substantive. And, you know, for Sunak, he was a Brexiteer. He wants to show that there are changes. I think there'll be a bit of, you know, kind of, it'll be a softer tone. Certainly won't be the, the Trussian sort of, you know, bring up the drawbridges type, type situation. But I mean, this is the tough reality is you can't move that far away from the EU because frankly, a lot of these regulations are sort of internationally accepted. It's not like the EU is an outlier on many of these things. Um, and, you know, don't want to get into insurance regulation, but for example, oh, one of the big please. changes, Solvency 2, touts yeah. this huge, you know, great big inflows coming into the UK economy of this. You've now got the backdrop of this you know, LDI crisis, yeah. which, uh, you know, I think has maybe put that on the back burner a bit. But when you're going into the winter months with a huge cost of living crisis inflation, like how much should we actually care about the city of London? Controversial. We could all just go home now. <laughs> yeah, I'm horrified by that question. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, it, but it's like, should it really be the, the, you know, the priority of the prime minister? Like how much does the city of London contribute to overall GDP. Oh, and I think, no, look, I mean, it's a huge industry. It's 10% of the, the economy or around that. It's, it's, you know, I think it's our biggest exporter. I mean, whichever way you look at the British economy, without the City of London, without finance, um, you know, you've, you've got to prioritise it on some level. And I think that was their big complaint during Brexit is, for political reasons, it got sidelined. And guess what? They're now paying the price for that because the City of London is kind of boxed in. I mean, it's still an enormous strength. I think no one's sort of thinking it won't be a global financial centre. But, you know, you look at the opportunity costs that, you know, perhaps could have been averted somewhat if there'd been a bit more of a dialogue with the city or, you know, they'd been included on that trade deal. Uh, and I think to David's earlier question, I think that's the point is we're now starting to see what the cost is. And that will encourage, you know, perhaps a bit more sort of centrist thinking on this. And, and you know, Singapore on terms, which is a phrase I think people really hate, uh, both because it's kind of offensive to Singapore and, and, <laughs> and doesn't really capture the nuance here. But... You know, that idea, I feel, is now sort of increasingly defunct and, and hopefully, you know, like everything, it will probably be a bit of a grey area and, you know, there'll be a move to try and eke out some benefits without spooking either the Brexiteers or the Remainers. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please do head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. And Francine, do you think all those people who signed up for their free merch are enjoying the show? I hope they are. Thank you so much for all of your great responses. I love also that a lot of you send screen grabs. I mean, we trust you to subscribe and listen to the podcast, but I do appreciate um, the, the screen grabs and we will pick five of you some great merch coming your way our producer summer is nodding to that she's ready okay so this house this episode was hosted by me david merritt and me francine lacqua it was produced by summer sardi special thanks to simon kennedy Catherine griffiths and tom metcalf the countdown has begun from may 14th to 16th 
a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.